Hi, and welcome to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 96, on my way to 100 um, here. And today, I'm going to bring you back um, another fine guest who's actually been on this podcast before two years ago. I cannot believe this, but welcome back, Professor John Hawley. Hi, John. Hi there. It's good to be back. And again, yes, it doesn't seem two years since we last spoke. So uh, great to be here again in 30 degrees Celsius in uh, sunny Melbourne. Yeah, thanks for reminding me of that. <laughs> Although, uh, actually, yeah, well, you know England very well. For people who haven't heard your previous episode yet, because they're still getting through uh, some of the more recent ones, or for people who've only just joined the podcast, um, perhaps you could uh, remind us um, as to, well, two things. Firstly, who you are and, and what it is uh, you, you, you get up to uh, professionally, but also there's, um, you have a very strong link to the UK, and it'd be interesting to chat about that quickly too. Absolutely, yes. Well, obviously born in the UK, I won't bore you with all the details. Parents emigrated to New Zealand, but actually ended up coming to study at uh, Loughborough University under Clyde Williams, uh, um, ironically, as I was born in Leicester, and now have an appointment at the MacKillop Institute in the Centre for Exercise and Nutrition, but also uh, a joint appointment with Liverpool John Moores University. And uh, the reason for that is purely academic, but also because I'm a, an avid and lifelong Liverpool supporter. So, so many links there. The, the Really, the lab deals with exercise nutrient interactions, and the whole focus of the group over the last decade or so has, has been looking at ways to uh, to improve performance, and also look at some of the underlying mechanisms whereby uh, performance is improved by adding, if you like, exercise and nutrients or nutrients to exercise. So to optimise both of those, and uh, and that's an area that we're still keen to pursue. So, uh, as I like to tell the students, we. We don't do drugs. We just look at exercise and nutrient uh, interventions. Yeah, no, that, that, that's great. And, and actually, that podcast I referred to, which was in April 2015, unbelievably, um, so literally is uh, pretty much two years, episode 51, we, we discussed carbohydrate availability and training adaptation. And I strongly recommend everyone goes listen to that. It's, it's all extremely uh, current still. Um, and actually, I uh, have managed to lure your your uh, better half onto this podcast, I believe, who um, Louise will be coming on soon to talk about low carbon, high fat, and, and all that stuff. So, yes, it's it's a well kept secret. You know, most of the most of the population are in the know in the field that uh, Louise is my wife. But uh, if I had a dollar for every time I was introduced as Louise Burke's husband, I could probably retire on it very very soon. But, but uh, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, sobering, sobering. Yeah, we, we actually talked about that two years ago because I saw you and Louise um, present a lecture um, at a professional rugby club. Um, That's right. Yeah, and uh, I didn't know. So there you go. I was, I was one of those. So anyway. You did some good work. So I, I wanted to get you back on to the podcast because we had such a, a great chat last time. And initially, as you know, when I contacted you, I wanted to sort of update where we were. But then um, I saw your recent paper um, on integrative biology of exercise that was published in Cell um, that had, um, I, I know, has achieved huge levels of impact, which is wonderful. And I've been doing quite a few podcasts lately. I mean, I've done a few in, in the past on things like molecular biology related topics. Um, in fact, the last one was with Jackson Fife, also over in Australia about concurrent training and interference. And I've done a few others on topics, um, similar topics um, with Keith Barr, uh, Lee Hamilton and, and such. But it, it always strikes me as being very interesting, um, how how much we learn mechanistically from a lot of a lot of science um, that's performed in in, the, in this area of sports science, sports nutrition. The, the as you discuss in your paper, the advancements in molecular biology techniques has really advanced our understanding. But my own personal interest and in my area of research is in how we acquire knowledge in our field, um, primarily which relates to the context of its application. And that's where um, I think things tend to go a little awry because people are, um, are reading or discussing science that's in the context of highly controlled variables. It's all in the lab. It might be on animals. 
Um, it's important, and we'll get into this hopefully, uh, because it helps us to understand stuff. But it is not necessarily in the context of application, i.e. the real world. And that's why I felt that this paper was so important, and everyone must read it, and I'll put links to it um, here um, in, the, in the podcast um, show notes. But there was a couple of statements that really jumped out of me that I just want to preempt our discussion with. And one of which was this idea that w- w- we, we look at exercise and we study its impacts on health and we talk about how therapeutic exercise is, except that actually exercise is the normal state for human beings. Um, so that's one thing I wanted to talk about. But, um, you go on about crosstalk between muscle and organs that I find fascinating um, and of course there's as I alluded to we have this sort of redu- reductionist approach to how we're doing this um, which is important but I also wanted to talk about you know the, the bigger picture with this so um, I guess I guess John perhaps you could start this off then with why this review came about on integrative biology of exercise well, that's, that's a really good point. And actually, I, um, I took a glance at it just before we came on air. And um, you must be psychic because there's a couple of things that I thought would be interesting to talk about. And you picked on them anyway, but we'll come to those. So I, I guess the first thing, I think, I think it's an important paper, not because I wrote it with you know, an esteemed cast of authors there, but it's actually the first time that cell, which you know, has a stratospheric impact factor and things that most exercise physiologists and nutritionists can only dream of. It's the first time they've actually, to my mind, taken exercise seriously and actually commissioned a review. So, and I think they've been shocked by the reception it's got, because as you mentioned, and again, I'm not giving an advertorial for it here, but it's, it's still in the top uh, 5% of all papers tracked by metric. And you know, that, that number's about 70. And, it, and it's, it's received prolific citations now, but that, that's good for me, of course, but it's, I think it's very, very good for the field. So as far as, when we got the invite to do this, uh, and Julian Zerath was my co-conspirator on this, we were amazingly excited, firstly, because we thought, well, cell aren't really interested in exercise, and that shows the paradigm shift that there has been in the big journals, and, and I can talk about that in a second. But, but secondly, we saw it as a real opportunity to, to put exercise on the map, because there is no question now that when I go to, and I hate the word basic and applied, as you well know, but mm. when I go to some of these more basic mechanistic meetings, I think the big boys that play molecular biology and are very good at it really don't have an understanding of what exercise is. Mm. And I can give you an example without mentioning any names. When we were writing uh, certain papers with collaborators, you know, I was amazed and astounded to, to actually think that they didn't really understand that there might be a molecular difference between strength training and endurance training. And they said, oh, wow, we thought, you know, we thought all exercise was exercise. And it's like, no, actually it's not as you know, 99% of your listeners will know. And of course, all undergraduates will know. So it was almost an education thing. So we had to be, I guess, reach the molecular biologist, but also reach the, the audience that we wanted to talk to, which was, of course, the exercise physiologist. So, so that's a brief potted history. And I think it's an important review. Again, it could have been written by a number of leading people in the world. That's not the issue. But the issue is, it's actually been taken seriously. And I think now there is the at least recognition and, and slow acceptance that, you know, this exercise stuff's pretty powerful. So I think you're going to see some of the big boys, the molecular boys who, you know, publish in Cell and Science and the journals, which again, you know, you and I can only dream of on, on an everyday basis. I think there's a slow paradigm shift that the recognition that exercise and for that matter, diet are very potent, powerful interventions. And and I, I really don't think they realise that. And that sounds kind of crazy for you and I, but that's the playing field which we sort of originally were trying to encroach on. And, and I think, judging by the success, that has happened to some degree. So I think it's very good for the field. And of course, I'm, like you, passionate about exercise and anything that I can do to promote it, I will do. So I, I think the review has had the desired effect. Having said that, it took us a year to write and we were uh, painstakingly careful in everything we wrote, even though there's a few provocative statements in there which again you picked up on so that that's the history of it anyway oh but provocative's good unless you're tim notes of course and then it's just rubbish oh don't that came up two years ago let's just leave that <laughs> <laughs> so, so um actually uh, one of your co-authors in that paper michael joiner i um yeah. i interviewed uh, michael um 
BBC. It was only a few weeks ago. Um, uh, oh, I can't find the number, but yeah, it was very, very recently. Um, and uh, that was a brilliant podcast. And uh, for all the science it, it, we could have got into, he was like, ah, just don't worry about all the science, just master the basics. <laughs> Yeah. Um, look, he's again. He's not vegan. We we had to tame some of Mike's comments down, as you probably know. He's he's really. Uh, I won't say anti, but I think he's raising an interesting point. You know, the genome was uncovered in two thousand, two thousand and two, whenever it was, and you know, this was going to cure all diseases and you know, in the genes. And as Mike has correctly pointed out in many very provocative review articles, you know, it's really advanced medicine very in, in very small increments, and it's had nowhere near the effect which you know. Francis Collins and Craig Venture originally postulated it was. And, you know, given the money that they've had, you know, would that money have been better spent doing other things? Well, that's another topic for another day. But Mike is very, uh, I won't say anti, but uh, show me the evidence that precision medicine and the genome project has actually enhanced human health at the population level. And I think you'll have a hard time arguing against Mike. So I, I enjoy good conversation with Mike. And it was interesting that you said that you interviewed Mike because normally you can't get a word in edgeways with Mike Joyner. Yeah, I, I did try. He still, he still dominated the conversation, but yes, it, 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 he's very pragmatic and that's what I like. And I think, you know, I use the word in the context of application. And I think that that, for me, that phrase is important because often that's forgotten when we're looking at science or talking about science because it's often not been instigated or created in the context of application so we just have to be very careful about how we interpret that information and Absolutely. my my interests are how we use this stuff in the real world and you know yeah you can do it but should you is always a thought process um but it's this topic the, the you know the integrative thing that i'm just going to read out there's another phrase that came up um, this is at the end of your paper, actually, and I thought that this is a really, really important statement for me, and I want the listeners to hear this, because then we can get into this paper a bit. But here you say that organisms, uh, an organism's phenotype as a whole, um, that interacts and adapts to the external world. Um, and I think that that's, that's important. Um, it, you know, I think perhaps, maybe we can come at this sort of in reverse a bit, but why is it important to approach this from an integrative perspective rather than just, you know, the, the individual parts that, you know, that dominates the um, literature? Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a great question. And again, we were, we were very careful in what we said in the review. And we talk about the reductionist approach. And if your audience are not quite au fait with that, what it means is literally um, breaking up the machine into the sum of its parts, taking one of those parts out, and then seeing if the organism or machine still works as a whole. Now, that doesn't happen in, in whole body intact humans. So you've got a model which is very good at uncovering mechanistic variables and looking at why things work and what happens if you either knock in something or knock out something. But again, you know, there are very few human models of genes that are either being knocked in or knocked out. There are a few chronic metabolic diseases. McArdle syndrome, for example, is one where the subject lacks glycogen phosphorylase and can't break down glycogen. But these are unique and very, very, very rare. So the reductionist approach works for people who want to look at mechanisms. But my problem here is when you try and translate this, and I always come back and say to the students, I said, so what? What is the message? What's your message for the man in the street? Most of the basic scientists can't give you that. Now, that's not to say that basic science doesn't have a place. It most certainly does. And I love this discovering why things work. But at the end of the day, you said it in your introduction, you know, we're talking to people who are practitioners who are trying to get the message of exercise or diet across. And unless you can deliver that message to the public, all the reductionist experiments in the world will help you not one iota. So the reductionist approach has its place. I'm not saying it doesn't have its place in science, but I think we need to be very cognizant of the fact that we are human beings, we're integrative physiology, moving parts. One thing doesn't happen in isolation. You don't have a muscle contract without a blood flow, without excitation coupling and all the other things that happen. And I think sometimes we've lost sight of that, as particular in this sort of era of genomics, metabolomics, proteomics, et cetera, et cetera. And I'll, I'll just say one thing here. We, we can measure, or my students now can measure 
you know, 50, 100, 1,000 fold more things than I could measure when I did my undergraduate degree. But I challenge them and say, well, does, does that mean you can prescribe exercise better for your patients or your clients? Does that mean you've got better nutritional advice? You've got a lot more information, but has it added value to your message? And often I get some blank looks, to be honest. Yeah, it's, it's actually interesting you, you, you say that. My, um, my good buddy and um, someone you know very well, Professor Graham Close, um, has started up a, 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 a nice blog because he's a very you know applied translational orientated guy, um, and um, and I think it's his latest blog actually where he's discussing you know yeah you can you can test these things but should we test these things um, and there's a great deal of confusion that comes out of these things just, you know because you can find with the right level of technology which is no doubt going to improve over the years you can see all sorts of stuff but, but but it begs the question of do we actually know what we're looking at? Um, again, in the context of the bigger picture. And we, we actually discussed this a bit two years ago about the advancement of technology and how that's you know, really helping us understand things like substrate utilization. Um, yeah. Super interesting. But you know, rather than only looking at this as a positive thing, perhaps do you think that like a, a kid or a, a grown-up kid, you know, that's found a new gadget, you know, we get super excited and enthusiastic for this new toy and we use it a lot, um, maybe initially, but is it perhaps just like Michael Joyner was going on about, it distracts us from the things that are more robust. Um, you know, we, you guys talk about confidence a lot in your, you know, how confident are you of your findings? Does it dissuade us from confidence perhaps? That's a real... <laughs> That's a really interesting and thought-provoking question. I mean, I'll say a couple of things on that. I mean, I'll quote my dear wife on this one. I mean, she often says, you know, you can measure all these wonderful, well, she calls it alphabet soup, all these wonderful signaling proteins, but how is that going to help me, you know, get one of my athletes to win a gold medal in, uh, in Japan? And the answer is, it's, you know, it's probably not. And one thing that you said in your introduction again, which is quite pertinent, is, and this is a direct, I guess, plea to students out there some one of the hardest papers i ever did was a, a paper in cape town where we did a field study of soccer players with and without carbohydrate and it it took about 40 investigators to do this study over a two-week period with a crossover design meticulously controlled and the end result is we got a paper but in a journal which i won't name but it was pretty low impact on the contrary that is one of the hardest studies i've ever done and undertaken on the other hand, you can knock out a gene in a mouse model or a rat model or whatever it is, and bang, you've got a, a unique finding, although it's a reductionist approach, and it'll get you in a much higher journal. And, and my challenge, I think, and the challenge of people like myself who do what I call, you know, bench top to field research or applied to, to basic, whatever you want to call it, is, is to actually make sure that the work that we do in the lab does translate. And one thing is very clear is that the field study, and work undertaken in the field, such as Graham does, James Morton, and many other good guys, I don't think that deserves the recognition and has the impact that it should have. And that's what practitioners need to be questioning, you know, like you have. It's all very well to control this in the lab with a fan, with air conditioning, with temperature regulation, with drinks provided by students at regular intervals. That's not how it is when you run a marathon or when you do a cycle race. So I think we need to get back to the real world and actually make sure that those contributions to the field are rewarded and not really put down like they are at the moment. You know, mm. it will only get in so-and-so journals, so we don't do it. I think that's a snob attitude towards it. And again, I applaud the people who are doing research in the field with real athletes, with real people in real situations, because I can assure you it's much harder than some of the stuff we do in the lab. No, I completely agree. I mean, one of the reasons, well, one of the things that, um, influenced my thoughts on this was a paper by uh, well it, 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 this is quite an old paper but it doesn't old doesn't mean bad obviously um, um, it's called plaudits and pitfalls in studying elite athletes and and this was um, Michael H Stone and his group William Sands Jenny McNeil that these are all the you know the US Olympic Committee and th they make a very powerful case for um, elite athletes being unique population for study they're you know they're the outliers so if we're trying to you know 
make a nice cozy study, which is important because we want, you know, powerful data. We want to generalize that to, you know, um, the field. But that isn't the elite athletes. That's not, that, that's a whole different bunch of people. You know, we're not going to say, for just, just by way of an example, let's go and uh, study a bunch of average athletes and then tell Jessica Ennis to do what they're doing. Um, and that studying someone like Jessica Ennis is invalid because there's only one of her. You know, it, 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 I, think that, I think that we need to change our mindset. They're both valid, but I personally find that there's a lack of respect for, you know, the supplied knowledge that, that we now are well equipped to, to look into. Um, I mean, do you think, do you, do you agree with that? I think that's a really, I think that's a really good point. And again, you know, um, seem to be talking more about my wife than myself here, but she's just had a paper accepted in the journal of physiology, which was on elite world-class rate walkers. And when I say elite, these are Olympic medalists, world champions and everything else. And I, for one, get extremely aggravated and annoyed. And when I'm a reviewer, I get very annoyed and let the authors know that, uh, you know, when a study has 10 male participants from a college team and their VO2 max is 55 mils, they are not elite. I'm sorry, but they're just not. And I think we need, you know, we're going off topic a little bit, but I think we need some general classification of what we mean by elite. And you're right, they are genetic outliers. They are different phenotypically. They are different genetically. And as such, by definition, there are only a few of them. And, you know, conclusions in papers of moderately recreationally trained individuals purporting to give the same message to elite athletes are completely erroneous. And, you know, it shouldn't be read at all, <laughs> to be completely honest. Not in that context anyway. So, yes, elite athletes, is, is, they're a very hard population to study. And even, even with the access that Louise has with the Australian Institute of Sport, we're able to collect blood, but we're not able to collect tissue. So looking at mechanistic things, which is of interest to me, isn't of interest to the coach. All they want to know is what makes them walk, run, or cycle faster. And, and again, those are sometimes questions that we can't actually answer that well, I think. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I mean, look, it, the, the reason why I mentioned this, and there's lots of fine researchers and scientists sitting in their labs right now, um, cursing at us. <laughs> um, sure. But we're, we're in the safety of a pre-recorded podcast as far as they're concerned. Um, but, um, yeah, but, but equally, equally to defend our, our stance, if you like, or our position on that, there, there are very good people in labs, you know, right now as we talk, who are doing and straddling both what I would call basic mechanistic research and, and really good research. You know, you've got people like Andy Jones and James Morton and, and, and many others, and I'm just talking about people in the UK who do both. So it is possible to do both, but yeah. I think we have to remember the context of which we do both. And, you know, exactly. we've talked about the contrived laboratory situation. And I think sometimes, you know, we have to actually get out there in the field. It's hard work and it's very, very hard to do. But if we want the results to be translational, I think we have to make that leap. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I completely agree. That's my mission. Uh, that's how I started my research for, you know, where this, what started with this podcast. And then, you know, four years in, I've, I've learned a lot. And if there's one thing that I've learned, it's, you know, there are huge limitations to the knowledge, despite yeah. the immensely impressive nature of it, um, you know, whether it's published in, in, you know, the highest level of impact factors like nature or whatever, it, you just got to be careful with the context in which that information, um, you know, was instigated. And, and it, what, what I find, and this was a problem I had initially, was it's very difficult to interpret that information and how we're supposed to understand the relevance of it. And it, there's a lot of noise out there. And, and whether you talk about social media noise with just lots of rubbish, um, there's a lot of bickering as well that goes on with, with, with the scientists. Um, yeah. some of it's friendly and that gets misinterpreted. Um, so this, this, this is just a good platform to have a discussion, I feel. Um, right, let's get a bit more on topic here so uh, we can give folks uh, a bit more juicy, sciencey stuff, having talked about all that. <laughs> so, um, we, you know, we've talked about the importance of um, understanding that, you know, when we're talking about things like molecular biology, physiology, throw out terms like mTOR or VO2 max or whatever. These are just parts. These are bits. Um, mm -hmm. Integrating this in, into a whole then. Um, could, could you, well, let's come at this because we're talking about exercise. So, what, you know, what is significant about exercise 
um, in terms of the challenge that, you know, that it presents to the body. And we can keep this general initially um, because, sure. uh, um, and maybe I'm going to backtrack a bit and confuse the issue for you. So hopefully you're, you're going to untangle the mess here. But I did mention earlier about this business of we keep talking about exercise and the potential therapeutic benefits of it. And yet exercise is actually our normal state. Um, so in the context of exercise should be the normal state, but it does represent major challenges to the, to the, to the body, but perhaps you can sort of go from there. And yeah, well, look, first of all, I'm not going to take credit for the, um, for the statement that exercise should be a normal state. And I'd, hmm. I'd really direct your readers to two fantastic papers by uh, Frank Booth in the journal of applied physiology and their title, something like waging war on modern, chronic diseases and the other ones uh, fighting the battle with uh, ammunition or something other like that but they're in journal of applied physiology they're both very very good commentaries and and frank makes the point that you know we were we were evolved and we met this point in the review such that normal physical activity was that everyday state and the problem is now we've we've really got a maladjusted genome that is used to seeing or was used to seeing a regular amount of physical activity as you know hunters or gatherers or people in manual labor even you know a hundred years ago and now we've completely abolished that such that you know the normal state for most people is, is an office job sitting down for the most part with very low levels of activity during the day so we've got a genome which is used to seeing stimulus from muscle contraction from activity from from running jumping throwing from day-to-day -day activities and now in the modern state we've abolished that adding to the complexity of the issue is now we've got access to food virtually you know 24 7 around the clock so what we're doing is perturbing a system which was used to a certain if you want to call it uh, level of physical activity and level of nutrition such that now we, we've just got a plethora of cr chronic diseases which as we know are a pandemic you know obesity type 2 diabetes etc etc so that's a model that is evolved through you know frank booth and the thrifty gene theory and in times gone past it was very good to store food because you weren't sure where your next mammoth or your next animal or whatever it is you were eating that day was going to come from but now of course we, we can just walk around the corner in any modern city and you know there's there's about 500 takeaways and various options to choose from so now we've got the situation where we've still got the thrifty gene but unfortunately we don't really need it because not we're doing any exercise so we've got this misbalance between energy intake and energy output and it, it really is a problem we've got to the state where we've basically engineered daily physical activity out of our lifestyle and i and i think that is a a, a huge problem a, a massive problem so where does exercise come into this to add to your second part of the question there i mean any time you do any physical activity, you, you perturb cellular homeostasis, whether it's in the muscle, whether it's you know, oxygen saturation in the lungs, whether it's cardiac output. Every single organ is affected by exercise. And again, you mentioned it succinctly in the introduction, a concept which has evolved and really, really tells you that exercise is integrative and whole body is the fact that in the last decade, labs have discovered that exercise in muscle talks to other organs and as you correctly termed it you know crosstalk and that is a fascinating area you know muscle now releases myokines cytokines exosomes whatever you want to call them that talk to to adipose tissue that talk to bone even and even talk to the brain and i think this is a a tremendous area for future research the fact that we now recognize that exercise is all-powerful and to some extent the crosstalk from muscle may explain why exercise does just have this massive panacea of, of massive adjustments and benefits to every single organ that you can think of there isn't an organ that I can't that I can think of now that isn't affected by exercise and the reason for that is partly because of this muscle crosstalk so we recognize that exercise is a very powerful tool to not only exercise, be healthy, but to confer health benefits to other organs. And that's a tremendous advance, I think, in the field. Yeah, I mean, as you say that, of course, we talk about um, exercise as the normal state. But of course, eating a certain way or eating maybe uh, in a more erratic manner 
um, because of the nature of changes of seasons and you know um, we lived in a in a world amazingly enough without you know supermarkets and, and refrigerators and and so on so of course you know we're trying to understand and test this concept of of the body in differing environments and yet you know the the environments i guess that we were originally designed for is one that that we're not actually putting you know the body into um, most people as you mentioned don't exercise and most people don't eat the way we used to so yes. it sort of begs the question of you know what are we what are we even learning here when we're effectively are you know putting a um, a finely tuned race car into an off-roading environment. It's not even. It's not even the world it was designed for. Well, it, it's it's funny you mention that. And if, if I've got the chance in a couple of minutes, I'll tell you a series of very exciting studies, which you know we'll have the results in two years, and you can bring me back. Mm. Then we're looking at um, the Cadian metabolomics, and what do I mean by that? We've got a study ongoing in our lab at the moment, which is a world first, where we have people basically perturbed this normal circadian rhythm we do that by either keeping them sedentary or giving them a high fat diet an excess calorie diet mm. and then when we perturb the system and we take in muscle biopsies every four hours throughout the day and night because that's what our collaborators say you need to do circadian metabolomics so we're doing that and then we're looking at the effects of a healthy diet and exercise to re retrieve and if you if you like again recalibrate the circadian clock so what you said is very true we've perturbed the normal circadian rhythms and that that's a big problem you know we've known for years that shift workers live less but now we've got very good epidemiological data to show that at least in animals that if you give them bad diets or you restrain them from their normal or physical activity that glucose homeostasic resting metabolic rate a whole host of nasty nasty things go on so we've embarked on a, a program of studies for the next three years where we are deliberately trying to perturb and upset and decalibrate the circadian rhythm by things such as lack of activity and bad diet that you just said, and then show how powerful exercise and diet interactions are at retrieving these. So again, we have no data yet. We're in the middle of collecting this, but I think it's a very, very exciting area and, and, and of massive interest to many, many people because there are many, many people out there, overweight, obese, shift workers, metabolic disease, etc. So I'm hoping that this is, if you like, basic research that will be massively translational when we get some of the answers. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I mean, I, um, so a lot, of the, a lot of the people that I've talked about, um, the molecular biology stuff, you know, it, I mean, it gets pretty complex. Um, even in the last podcast, you know, it, it, I mean, <coughs> I had to had to uh, take my brain to hospital after that conversation. I mean, it is it is complex stuff, and it's fascinating at, at the same time. But you know, we're 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 learning so much more about these things. Um, but also, I feel, particularly in the last four years of speaking to ninety five odd, um, you know, ninety five people such as yourself, I just come to the conclusion that we we know a lot less than we really think we do. Um, but to, just to bring us back on point, because that's a red herring, I think, but the, 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 in, your, in your paper there, um, <clears throat> we, you know, you're talking about this concept of crosstalk, and that's why I was talking about molecular biology stuff, because we're, we're sort of, I guess, listening in to some of those conversations. But it's a bit like listening into any conversation. You, you don't necessarily know what they're really talking about. And you're in the UK, you'll be familiar with this term. But I remember as a, as a teenager or whatever, you, you, you know, someone would overhear a conversation and someone would go nuts because of something they heard. And you'd be, oh, you're just picking up fag ends. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe a bit of that stuff's going on as well. And, and the influence that that has on how we translate that to the bigger picture, um, bringing this back to the integrated this concept so you know maybe from from what from what we know we talk about confidence about this integration thing what what do we know well <laughs> you really put me on the spot now we do know that muscle does communicate with our other organs there is very strong uh, both if you like basic mechanistic research and functional research to show this is true with regard to muscle talking to bone, muscle talking to brain, muscle talking to adipose tissue, et cetera, et cetera. 
One of the big problems in deciphering the message, and this gets to the, the heart of your question, is often the people who are studying this, and, and I guess I'm as guilty of this or my research group is, is they're, they're tissue-centric. So we tend to see things, you know, if you're a muscle physiologist, you really don't care what's going on in the heart or the lungs or, or the adipose tissue. And the problem at the moment is we're all studying these organs in little isolated silos. And what it really needs to stop the sort of the Chinese whispering or what you said, you know, that the playground <laughs> misinformation is the fact that everyone should come together and say, look, this is happening here. This is happening here. Let's try and put these pieces together in a jigsaw. And I think your question again is very relevant. I think, I think we have the pieces of the jigsaw, but at the moment there's no one looking down at the board and saying, well, this piece fits here and this piece fits there. So what we've got is a lot of very good isolated mechanistic data to show muscle crosstalk definitely happens. Muscle talks to other organs in a positive and a beneficial way. But what we haven't got is the whole picture because I can't help think that, you know, whoever created it was very clever and she knew far more than we do in isolation. And looking down, she thought, well, this would be really handy if we could do this and this organ could talk to that organ. And I think we're missing the links between that at the moment. So in isolation, we know that muscle talks to bone or we know that muscle talks to fat, but I'm pretty sure that other organs talk to each other as well. I can't think that the muscles are clever or or not as clever as other organs. So I think in the next 10 or 20 years, we'll, we'll really see that this unravels and hopefully into an integrated pathway such that the, the long-held, you know, typical statements about this will be a cure for diabetes or this will be that or this will be that. I think we will see some progress in that field. In fact, I've got more confidence in that than some of the genetic stuff, which again, we talked about, Mike Joyner also doesn't think is going to pan out. I've got much more confidence in us finding out the crosstalk between organs and how we can foster and amplify those signals rather than finding, you know, a genetic cure for whatever disease it is. So that's my prediction. I'll probably be proved wrong in the next 10, 20 years, but um, I'm not sure you and I'll still be doing interviews at then, so it won't matter anyway. Oh, I, I don't know. I've got a horrible feeling I'm going to be stuck in this, uh, this thing because <clears throat> it's so interesting to talk to people about this stuff. And what is interesting is even in the last four years is how, certain opinions have started to change between the same researchers, which yeah. is very interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, just briefly on the thing of, of genetics, I, I have actually done a few podcasts where we've discussed this in one way or the other, and um, I raised that issue with Stu Phillips, actually, and, and, and he yeah. came back and said, look, you know, there is this, this, this response, which is this sort of, you know, uh, genetics loads the gun, lifestyle pulls the trigger, but then yep. you could talk about, depends where you point the gun, was the barrel even cleaned, is the bullet a dud, is the person wearing a bulletproof jacket? <laughs> There's so many different yeah. but ultimately preference, i.e. do you or don't you exercise, you know, do you or don't you attempt to eat well and get enough sleep, and you know, the things that we do have control over is probably, um, and logically, you know, the, the, the more important side of things. So, you know, the genetic stuff's all very interesting. People love to get, like, like I said, you know, we get enthusiastic about science. It reminds me of, so yesterday when my son came back from nursery, you know, he thrust into my hand this piece of paper that he'd scribbled something on, which to him was a masterpiece of work. And as my son, I thought, yes, this, this, this is amazing, but I have a feeling he's not going to become the next Monet or Picasso. <laughs> um, but to him, he would be proud of that. <laughs> I think that's no, you, you, sorry. You you mustn't tell, you mustn't tell him he's not going to become the next Monet yet. But no, look, I think what you said again is is very true. And again, you touched on it earlier. The fact of epigenetics. You know, genetics. Perhaps I say to my students, you know, genetics probably sets how high your ceiling is uh, physiologically or mentally or whatever else. But you know, your training, your epigenetics, and your nutrition and everything else and your brain decides how close you're going to come to that ceiling. So genetics may set the limits, but I think we're now realizing that the epigenetic modifications out there are just as important. And I would, I would say just as important. I wouldn't downplay that at all. I think the epigenetic factors have been underplayed and perhaps under-recognized at the extent of almost ignoring them until recent research. And I think we've overplayed the genetics card too much. That's my opinion. Yeah, yeah no, I, look, I... 
I'm certainly not an expert, but I've certainly have talked, spoken to experts, and the general consensus has been: look, it's going to be we're going to we're going to do amazing things, but we're not there yet. We're still learning yeah. the language. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So right. So um, in your paper, you talk about you know exercise um, um, and why study exercise. What you know, what is important about exercise? It's not just about you know, increasing VO2 max or, um, you know, that sort of thing. Um, exercise has profound implications for health. And athletes aren't just athletes. They're also human beings. I, I've talked about this a lot. It's important also to have healthy, healthy people who are also going to be athletes. So the implications of, of why, you know, why, why study exercise? What's important about it from an integrative biology perspective? Well, again, I, I think the fact, that exercise alone is is a primary prevention for many chronic diseases and i don't want to get on my high horse but if we keep looking for drugs which have the same effect of exercise these exercise memetics it just baffles me why we you know don't mandate for exercise in schools or you know even have legislative bodies coming out and saying we need 20 minutes of exercise at work each day i mean it's that simple this isn't rocket science exercise works the epidemiological studies the cross-sectional studies the intervention studies show that you know exercise can delay or even prevent the onset of you know 20 odd metabolic diseases and they're mostly lifestyle induced i.e epigenetic diseases too much food too little activity etc etc so you know why study exercise well i i can't think of why you wouldn't study exercise and that's not the answer to your question but it amazes me that it hasn't been taken seriously by the medical fraternity until very recently and i'll give you an example um a good friend and colleague here at Melbourne University who has some input in the medical curriculum for the medical school students. And I said, well, how much exercise and nutrition do they get? And I'm pretty sure it's the same in the UK. They get an astounding six hours in six years. Now, how can you go to a physician and how can they possibly have the information that your practitioners have because they've studied it for lots much longer than you know six hours how can they possibly even think of prescribing appropriate nutrition or appropriate exercise i wouldn't dream of going in and doing a, you know an appendicitis operation having seen one it, it just baffles me that the the medical fraternity don't take it seriously so why study exercise i'll turn that around and say why are we not studying exercise more seriously in places like medical schools because they are the primary point at which you know most of the the patients are seen they're not seen in the hospitals till it's almost too late so primary prevention through exercise is such a powerful tool that's you know that that's one reason there are many physiological and mechanistic reasons but i think that's one that i'd like to just get across it's such a powerful and all-encompassing uh, if you like treatment or therapy that it it seems criminal not to be studying it and not to be taking it seriously no, I agree. I, I, I mean, I, I'm not going to go down the hornet's nest that you, you just poked at. <laughs> uh, uh, but, um, I, you know, you make a strong point about this in your paper, which is exercise is the normal state for the body to be into. Yeah. Uh, yes. And in the same way, you know, I think if, if you didn't feed someone for two weeks and then you asked them to go, you know, run a marathon and you were, you know, you're trying to study, well, why is it they didn't perform very well? Uh, well, you know, if you, you, it would be obvious, well, they haven't eaten for two weeks, but we don't have that mindset for when we look right. at other things and go, yeah, but hang on, you know, this person's, you know, not being exercising, or of course they do studies where they've only just started training. Uh, yeah. you know, like in nutrition, you know, there's been a lot of studies where they show how a supplement's highly effective for say hypertrophy. And yet actually that person only just started training as well. And clearly the training yeah. stimulus was yeah. Uh, interesting, I find. Well, look, I, and here's another one. It's not really a hornet's nest, but the, the fact that some of these exercise training studies are done on untrained cohorts who exercise for, you know, six to eight weeks, or in some cases, you know, massively long 12 to 16 weeks, hmm. that doesn't tell you anything about a lifelong athlete or even someone who's been training for two or three years. The responses and adaptations are so different. You know, you're, you're perturbing homeostasis and the response to that is such a different scenario in someone who's an early exerciser and you know in other words just starting an exercise program versus a lifelong exerciser that's one point the other point and i know you've probably had people talk about this is 
and it is something that gets a lot of airplay and I did an interview earlier today on it is this issue of exercise training and responders and non-responders which annoys me intensely because I'll tell you now and I hope you'll back me up on this that I haven't seen a non-responder to exercise in all my years of testing thousands of athletes healthy and diseased populations and what I mean by that let me just clarify that often papers will say well we did a training program for six weeks and their vo2 you know hardly changed they were low responders or non-responders and i said well that may have been your main outcome variable but did their weight drop did their body fat drop did they have an increase in insulin sensitivity did their blood lipid profile improve oh yeah yeah, yeah. well they're not a non-responder then and i am increasingly annoyed by the fact that this term has now even if you like been adopted by some exercise physiologist and I'll quote the late Ben Saltine. You know, we had many discussions on this. And he said, John, there is no such thing as a non-responder to exercise. It's just that the researchers haven't trained them hard enough. And again, I think, and I feel very passionately about this issue at the moment because uh, it's coming up in a lot of our grants and a lot of other things and in everyday terminology. And the public are aware and they say, well, if I'm not a non-responder or if I'm a low responder, why should I bother training? I'm not going to respond. And I think we've really done the public a disservice so you know you've got practitioners out there many who are listening there is no such thing as a non-responder guys go out and spread the message of exercise you are a responder you will be a responder i really fail to see why we've accepted this if you like derogatory term so willingly and encompassed it and embraced it yeah i'm thinking now of uh, uh an american style you know sort of um uh, old old style um what was it you know the uh uh, uh the american um you know the president with the stars and stripes hat pointing at you yes. you know we want you, <laughs> you you are not a responder i'm going to get that created with your face on it <laughs> um yes i come up this chat has come up before a few times in fact ask you can do, um uh also talked about this drives him nuts as well uh, yes. and um you know obviously look we're individuals we've alluded to this already um, especially if you're talking about outliers, you know, yeah. outliers not going to respond the same way as an average person. So it, it, it's, you're right. I think it's not a question of being a responder or a non-responder. It's just that you haven't got the appropriate, you know, approach, intervention or stimulus or whatever that, that is specific to that individual. Um, yeah. and, and again, uh, just, to, just to elaborate, that very very briefly i mean i would say to your students and listeners it's the outliers that you should be looking at they're really interesting you know the mean response tells you the average response but aren't you interested in the person who you know gets a massive kick out of three milligrams per kilogram of body weight caffeine versus someone who doesn't get anything at all they're they're the people that you should be looking at because they can really answer some of your hard questions and again if you're an athlete or a practitioner you're not concerned with the mean response you want to know if that athlete or your client, or the person who's sitting in front of you who wants to lose weight, you want to know what works for them. You are not concerned with the average response at the population level. You're concerned with the individual response. And again, a message to the listeners, look at the variability in your responses. You know, you'll collect data. If it's in a practitioner sense, you'll have experience at doing this. If it's in a laboratory sense, that's all well and good as well. But it's the outliers to me who are very, very interesting. And, you know, we tend to look at them and say, oh, they're, they're screwing the data up. They're an outlier. Let's throw them out. Don't throw them out. Keep them in. And look why they're different. Yeah, I, I, I actually first came across, across this concept um, three or four years ago. Now, Stu Phillips was over, over in the UK and he was lecturing on a program I run. And, um, you know, he made a, a big point about this is, is that, you know, scientists pub, publish means. Um, of course, nowadays, um, you're seeing more and more data, you know, appearing in papers. Um, but, but this term generalizability keeps coming up. Um, you know, what, what are you generalizing and who are you generalizing it to? Um, which is why we keep repeating this, this message. Um, so, John, let's just get back on track here because we're, we're clearly on the same page with this stuff. But um, let's, let's bring this back to the integrative biology thing. And I think what we just discussed is relevant because, of course, an integration of many unique scenarios is going on. So one, one man's integration is not another man's integration, I think, is one way we could look at this. I mean, it's obviously deeply complicated. And, um, but when, when you're talking about 
exercise, it, you know, someone doesn't just exercise. There's a lot of stuff that's going on. And if we if we look at this from the from you know if we if we if we focus in on the muscle as being the you know the the main point of interest here, when a muscle contracts, it, it things happen. And you use the word crosstalk. So perhaps you could just get into that a bit. What, what do you mean by crosstalk? Okay, well, let's just go back. You said all the action centers on the muscle. It does, and this is a strange paradigm, perhaps for the listeners to, to grasp. But, you know, I tell my students when I lecture them at Exercise Physiology 101, any time you do start to exercise, the body is just trying to get you back to its normal state of rest or homeostasis as quickly as it can. So any... Uh, I guess, response that you elicit by whether it's resistance training or, you know, endurance training or whatever it happens to be, the response of the body is to try and get you back to its resting state as quick as possible. So any that happens in the muscle is a, an acute response to try and restore cellular homeostasis. That's the first thing. The second thing is regard to crosstalk. And again, we're in, it, we're in the infancy here. We know that endurance exercise elicits crosstalk for various organs. We don't know what intensity is best to do this. We don't know what mode of exercise is best to do this. We don't know if nutrient uh, availability affects this. But what we do know at the moment, as I said earlier, is that muscle does release exokines, cytokines, which then communicate with the receptors on, for example, adipose tissue or even bone for that matter and send very powerful signals to those organs to, to literally upregulate and become stronger, fitter and healthier. So the muscle crosstalk is something that starts richly by perturbing the cellular homeostasis in that muscle. So without evoking, without exercising, in other words, a disturbance in the muscle, you don't get any of these responses. So in other words, you've got to do something to get the benefit. And that's the point. You're, you're literally perturbing cellular homeostasis, which evokes a whole cascade and a multitude of complex crosstalks to other organs by the very action of muscle exercising in the first place. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you instantly one realizes how complicated this is, and and why obviously, you know, scientists have a real dilemma with this because you just, I mean, at this point in time, you're not gonna you're not gonna be able to study everything at once. Um, there's a lot of systems. There's a lot of I mean, you know, I refer to these other podcasts about molecular biology. I mean, there's so much complexity to all of this. But, with, you know, with, with regards to, um, you know, the muscles and, and the organs, I mean, the, you know, the implications, at least from a, um, an integrative biologist perspective, um, you know, from, a, from health, well, I mean, you know, the, I guess what I'm trying to say here is, you know, where, where are we? Where are we going with this, John? I mean, where, you know, this is all very exciting talking about all the deep yeah. science. It's all very exciting talking about the importance of being careful about, you know, how we interpret this. But where, I mean, what direction is this actually going? Well, if you ask that question, I guess my answer to that, and the answer I put on every grant application I write, is that ultimately we are looking for for targets which will improve health. And what I mean by that is, and, and I really do not like the term exercise mimetics because there isn't a drug which mimics exercise. So let's make that quite clear very, very early on. The point here is that we are looking for pathways which are activated by exercise. And again, other organs which are involved with muscle crosstalk, such that certain people, one of them who won't be me, can look for other therapeutic or drug targets to action in people who, for one reason or another, aren't able to exercise or perhaps don't receive the full benefits of exercise. So, you know, that's something for other people to do because, as I said in the, in the interview earlier, I'm not really interested in looking for a replacement for exercise when exercise for 99% of the population is a, is a very powerful, potent, and practical tool. It baffles me, as I said, why we're looking for, for mimetics. But the answer to your question is really we are looking for those targets that that drug companies and others can can exploit and you know we are still looking unfortunately for exercise in a pill and that's a whole new avenue and a can of worms to open up but you know i'm not violently opposed to that for people who can't exercise but i'm violently opposed to it for people who can exercise in a, mm. in a much cheaper and much more beneficial and practical way 
Yeah, I, I, so mimetics is very interesting. In fact, um, recently I attended a lecture at the Royal Society of Medicine, have a sort of annual um, conference on um, 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 where sports and exercise nutrition is going in their food and health form. Uh, James Collins runs that. So a really good day. Um, Andy Philp, who you'll know of. So um, at the University of Birmingham now, he, he, he talked about this and he talked about all sorts of stuff. And quite clearly, he was against the idea of trying to find memetics. And, um, and, and his primary, I hope I got this right, if he's listening, bear with me, Andy. But the, the, one of the arguments against this is, you know, the, the exercising does so many things, as you've pointed out in the paper. It's just clear. There's no, you know, it's, it's hugely therapeutic. But when you take a pill, you know, you, you, you can't really, I mean, what are you targeting? What are you going to do? You're going you, to, you, there's so many things that get affected by the pill. But usually when scientists are studying it, they're only studying one thing. They're not looking at everything. Um, and I guess it's the ethical concept there of, well, what else is being affected? Well, there never will be one pill, on it? It's that simple. I mean, you, you can you can upregulate a certain pathway without getting too technical. You know, many of the, the exercise methods have targeted this enzyme called AMP kinase, the AMP activated protein kinase, which very, very quickly is a, is a metabolic, metabolic fuel gauge in the muscle. And so when you exercise, normally it becomes active and it, it, it promotes a whole lot of exercise training type effects. So the logic here is if you can mimic the activation of AMPK by giving drugs, and you certainly can, you can get an exercise-like effect. Now that happens in the muscle. It doesn't happen to any the other organ and as you said and we've clearly talked about in the last hour or so you know there is so much crosstalk between organs so you'd have to have a pill for the muscle a pill for the liver a pill for the pancreas a pill for the adipose tissue a pill for the brain it ain't gonna happen it's just not going to happen exercise again i'll use a paper that was published in cell metabolism by one of my postdoc students nolan hoffman a single bout of exercise upregulates about a thousand proteins one thousand proteins and there may be more these are just the ones that he measured. There isn't going to be a single drug or even a cocktail of drugs that can possibly activate a thousand different signaling pathways. I, I refuse to accept that that'll happen in my lifetime or anytime soon. So I, I do not like the term exercise mimetic. I think we should be talking about exercise activated pathways. Can certain drugs mimic the effects of exercise on specific pathways? Yes. Will we get the full health? Health-conferring benefits of whole-body dynamic exercise and emphatic no. Yeah, yeah. Well, that I mean, my my main thing is performance nutrition, and what excites me so much is you know, and I've mentioned this many times, but in the old days, nutrition was often thought about as just calories or you know proteins yeah. and carbohydrates and you know weight management and stuff like that. But the fact that you know, we're now having discussions about nutritional periodization. We're talking about the implications for strategic, um, you know, nutrition interventions that can influence mitochondrial adaptations, biogenesis, you know, stuff we talked about two years ago, uh, carbohydrate in particular. I've had lots of yeah. chats, you know, everyone from, you, you mentioned uh, James Morton, I've spoken to him um, about all this. Um, and that lots of people I've discussed this, this concept with that is exciting and maybe that's well it's not the mimetic specifically but it is that is the targeted intervention that get, that allows us to get so much more out of exercise on the rest of our biology is that a is that yeah. a fair thing well look it's funny you say that we're in the middle of writing a review article for I am a journal which will rename <laughs> yeah no that's and that's very good because we, we say, look, you know, we don't think the exercise memetic per se is going to happen, but we do know one very primary practical intervention that can overlay and magnify and amplify the effects of exercise, and that's nutrient availability. As you said, we've talked about that with regard to, to carbohydrate a couple of years ago, but we, we, we've got a, a plethora of information on, you know, carbohydrate uh, and particularly protein, lesser to the extent on fat, but showing how we can modify some of these signaling pathways simply by diet. So, you know, you don't need a drug. You can tailor your diet. And, and again, when I'm lecturing to the undergraduate students, I, I say, well, you wouldn't go out and train the same training session each day if you're a marathon runner. You know, you wouldn't go out and log, you know, 20K day after 
day after day after day, you periodize it. And they say, well, yes, of course. And I say, well, by the same definition, why wouldn't you periodize and tailor your nutrient availability to match that? And they start thinking, oh, yeah, that's, that's a new concept. <laughs> you think, well, it's not really new, but it's only in the last five or six years, maybe, or certainly since Ben Benxaltine's paper in 2005 that we've started thinking in terms of periodizing nutrition. And, you know, it's, it's easier said than done. I have to say that. It, it's, it's notoriously difficult to do. Um, uh, that doesn't mean to say we shouldn't be trying to do it. And I do think that's the, the next frontier, if you like, to look at the exercise nutrient interactions and how we can amplify signaling, not just for the athlete, but perhaps for you know, the lay population as well who want to gain the maximum benefits of exercise with, I hate to say it, the, the minimum of effort. Yeah, no, well, that, you know, look, that's why I'm obsessed with context. That's, that's the sort of underlying theme of, of this sort of science to practice approach that I have with this podcast. And it comes up all the time, you know, yeah, you can do these things, but should you? It depends. So what, like you said. And if there's one thing I'm hoping the listeners get out of it, it, it you know, it's that because that's, that's, that's the journey I've had to make and I've, I've gained so much from that. But it is important that we're constantly... Well, it's like um, Kevin Tipton. I keep throwing all these names out, but I have I do know these people. Yeah. I've interviewed all these people. Um, you know, he, he's very much about, you know, look, if there's a couple of things you really, really do need to do when you're sort of critically appraising all this, 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 this knowledge um, is be open-minded, but, but also be skeptical or be skeptical and open-minded. Um, you know, but you, you, you know, my thing about context, as I you know, keep saying, is such a key here. Um, so let, look, I know we're sort of coming to the end and, um, we, you know, the idea is to talk about integrative biology because everyone is going to read the paper. So what we're doing is filling in the gaps and adding in context and all that stuff. But, you know, just, just, just quickly, you know, the, the importance of looking at this from the integrative perspective and for those that are researchers and, you know, students and practitioners that do some, some level of assessments in their applied practice, you know, what are the key sort of areas then that we should be paying attention to from an integrative perspective when we're assessing sort of biological and, you know, physiological responses to exercise? Well, let, let me start with the, you know, the, the student or the undergraduate or someone who's thinking of studying exercise physiology. Um, you know, I, I often hear my students and, you know, some of them will be listening, unfortunately, but that's fine. They'll say, well, I'm not going, I'm not, I'm not going to go to this lecture because, you know, I'm a muscle physiologist and it's about cardiovascular. And I'm thinking, yes, but where does the muscle get its blood supply? Where does it get its nutrient supply, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You can't just look at muscle or an organ in isolation so i say to the students stop thinking in terms of being you know a muscle physiologist or a, a specialist in the cardiovascular system take the holistic approach and you know you've mentioned mike joiner earlier and i could add a few names the late mike rennie who passed away recently one morning and others these are what i call the last real group of classically trained integrative physiologists who knew and could answer questions on any organ in the body. And my guess now is if, you know, you talk to some of my guys in the lab and other guys in the labs of, you know, Kevin Tipton, Stu Phillips and, and all these big names, they're very muscle centric for the most part. And, you know, ask them about the cardiovascular system or the renal system. And they'll just look at you and say, well, you know, that's not my area of specialization. So I'd say for the student, don't just get locked into one organ. Let's be broader and let's look at it from, as I said, the integrated perspective. I'd also say, you know, for your practitioners or testing individuals and we had a we had a max test tonight on a on a subject in the lab and i said to the the people who ran the test i said so did you ask that subject what limited them during the max test and they said well what do you mean they were tired and i said no, no no did you ask them if they were peripherally limited in other words their legs gave up or their breathing and i said well they said no they, they didn't do that and i said well why not why don't you gain information on this and rather than just say they terminated the test because they're tired in untrained subjects, generally on the cycle ergometer, we find that untrained subjects, peripherally fatigued, their legs give out. It's not limited by cardiovascular dynamics or ventilation or anything else. So I'd encourage the practitioner in the field to look at all the cues. And again, again, it goes back to the max test tonight, which happened a couple of hours ago. They're looking at the heart rate. They're looking at the ventilation. They're looking at the lactate. I said, just look at their RPE. You'll know when they're going to finish the max test. When they get to 18 or 19, they've got a minute to go. They'll be completely stuck. 
the RPE gives you an integrative measure, and it's a good place to end this, I guess, of how they're feeling overall. And again, sometimes I think we overcomplicate things. I said, oh, yeah, the RPE, well, yeah, you know, it's not spurted out by the computer. I said, no, it's not. It's a subjective measure, but it's as good as any that you'll get. And I think probably that is a good place to stop. Sometimes we, we've, we've lost the common sense approach. And just by giving you that simple example, I hope the practitioner can see that sometimes looking at the whole body response, looking at a simple thing like a rating of perception of effort can tell you much more than your computer print that will ever tell you. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, sensible words there, John, repeated very strongly by Michael Joyner. <laughs> uh, but, but many others have too. And, you've, you know, I have done my best to try and speak to people who've been doing this for a while. And um, actually, you know, uh, a very interesting concept came up in um, an interview I did with Marco Cardinale, um, who, you know, headed up the... Um, Olympic uh, Sports Medicine and Science Program. I always get the title wrong. Um, I know I'm probably <laughs> stones thrown at me, but for quite a few Olympics when we were super, super successful, um, and I know we have been recently. But you know, he he brings up this concept of um, of, of not over sciencing. Um, yeah. Funny because everyone's a scientist that I'm interviewing, but you know, the really, really, the really, really successful ones, the really big ones who work with, you know, when we're talking about athletes in the real world. Is yeah, you know, that's all very interesting, but let's not overscience this. Yeah, yeah, I like it. I like it. I think sometimes we uh, we've got to get back to basics and, and a common sense approach. And I, one thing I always do is I uh, I think when we do this study, would the coach ask the same question? And I think sometimes we have to go back into the field and see what the coaches want, what the coaches are doing, is what the practitioners are doing, and often that can inform science much more than just generating hypotheses in the lab. No, absolutely. Yeah, we need to work with the coaches, not confuse them. Uh, absolutely. Right. Okay. Look, I think we've um, it's um, late in the day for you, so I'm going to let you go now. Um, but thank you so much for your time. It's been fascinating. As no, that's always 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 a pleasure to chat. And then uh, you know we often go off topic, but I think that's just that's as far right. as that's all right. topic you know that's the whole point. You know, I'm, I'm going to have everyone read the paper so they can read the paper. But hopefully, we've given them more stuff to think about which is really the ultimate goal excellent um right folks that's the end of today's podcast um you can catch up with all previous episodes remember episode i'm gonna have to look this up episode 51 um with um john on carbohydrate availability and training um but all the uh, backlog um is at guruperformance.com where you'll find other technical articles and other uh, programs of education, etc., that we run. I, of course, am Laura Bannock, and we'll bring back another podcast to you all very soon. <laughs>